Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann, and Happy New Year, everyone. Hope it's off to a great start. It's a new year, and if you're like many Americans, you want to lose some weight in 2019. And there's no shortage of advice on how to make that happen. But WebMD's chief medical editor, Dr. Michael Smith, says that some of the standard tips you hear, even the ones that many experts believe, are actually myths. He wrote a WebMD blog about this recently, and he's here today to help us sift through the good and the bad weight loss advice. Hi, Dr. Smith. Hi there. I want to jump right in and talk about a couple of these. The first myth you call out, make small changes and you'll get big results. That's one we hear quite often. You say instead that to get big results, you should have a big and bold plan. Why? Well, you know, we often talk about baby steps for your health. You know, take the stairs further away from the the mall so that you have to walk longer. Those are all great things to do when it comes to your health. But here's the reality when it comes specifically to weight loss. We'll take the 3,500 calorie rule as an example. What that rule says is if you either burn 500 calories a day or eat 500 fewer calories a day for a total of seven days, 3,500 calories, that you should lose a certain amount of weight. The research shows you'll you'll lose much less. Hmm. 3,500 calories is a pound of body fat. When they look at it in the research over a five-year period, whereas we would think people would lose 50 pounds according to the math, The reality is they only lose 10 pounds over five years. Hmm. So it's pretty frustrating to know that you're either busting your butt in the gym or really making nutritional changes that you think should produce big results. It's just not the reality of what happens. Now, I'm not saying you can't lose weight quickly. Absolutely you can, but you need to do it in a way that is going to be a bit bolder. And you might even think it could be extreme, but as long as it's nutritionally complete based on true lifestyle changes, not just a diet, doctor approved, make sure there's science to back it up, then do that. You know, it's okay to go big if you want to get big results. Not to say that those small changes aren't worth making, but they just may not lead to the dramatic weight loss that you might expect. Absolutely. Eat more broccoli, wonderful thing. Walk more, you should absolutely do those things, but do them for the right reason And weight loss is not the reason to do those because it'll just lead to frustration. Another myth you call out is one we hear a lot about this time of year when people are making their New Year's resolutions. Set realistic goals. That sounds pretty reasonable to me. Why is that a myth? Yeah, and it's not that it's necessarily a bad thing to set a realistic goal, but here's the thing. You know, when I coach clients um, in their weight loss journey, I often ask them, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, how committed are you? to your weight loss journey. Inevitably, people will say a seven or eight. It's pretty rare for someone to say a 10 because many people have been down this path before. Obstacles will show up as soon as you start a journey like this. And people know that, so it's hard for them to be fully committed. What that's likely to do is just prevent you from starting in the first place. But the research actually shows when they compare people who are all in a 10 on the scale versus you know people who might not quite be there, the not-quite-there people actually lose just as much weight because we think that if you're at least somewhat ready, you know, you're obviously considering weight loss. In the end, you're going to be just as ready once you get into the program or whatever you're doing to keep you moving forward. So if you're thinking about it, just go for it. That's great advice. I think the next one is tied to 
the safety of losing weight. A lot of times we hear that you should go slow and aim to drop maybe one or two pounds mm -hmm. a week just to avoid doing too much at once. But faster is actually better, you say. Yeah, I mean, not that one to two pounds a week is bad. I mean, you know, most people would say, hey, that's pretty darn good. And it any, is. Any weight loss is great. But what people often have to do to even get that one to two pounds off can be quite frustrating. And it's not very motivating. Faster weight loss, we know, is more motivating. It keeps you moving forward. But traditionally, we often think that fast weight loss is unhealthy weight loss. And that's because it dates back to the very low, ex low calorie, extreme diets that were not giving your body everything that it needed nutritionally. So it's about choosing the right approach. But what we know is that studies show people who do something, whatever they're doing, to lose weight more quickly, not only lose more weight in the short term, they actually are able to keep it off better. And it's likely because it's just more motivating for them when they're losing 10 to 15 pounds a month to keep moving forward. So as long as you're choosing the right program, and I can't stress that enough, do not do these crazy fad diets out of here. Right. If a, if a program is based on you popping a lot of pills, that is not a safe way to go. But if it's a nutritional healthy habits program that is based in science, losing 10 to 15 pounds a month is great. And it can be, like you say, more motivating than just a couple of pounds here and there. Right, absolutely. It definitely will be. What are some other myths that you hear a lot about when you're talking to clients who are on their weight loss journey? Yeah, I mean, so let's talk about fitness, kind of a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Resolutions are coming up, right? Mm -hmm. January 2nd, what do we see? The gyms are packed full of people. Mm -hmm. What do we see about a month or two later? Goes They're down. empty again, right? <laughs> Because people hit the gym hoping to, that they're just going to shred all of these excess pounds. But the reality is that exercise is a very inefficient way to lose weight. That's Unfortunately, very interesting. We know that weight loss is 80 to 90% nutritional changes. Now, again, I am not saying that exercise isn't wonderful. I mean, I'm a certified personal trainer as well. It's something you should absolutely do. But you do it to produce a strong and thriving life, not for weight loss so much. It's also very important for maintaining your weight loss, so the right kind of exercise at the right time. You know, a fun example is, you know, we'll just look at sex as an example, because you read that a lot. In you the, do hear that yeah, a lot. You hear it you a can, lot. You can burn calories while exactly. you're having sex, and that'll lead to weight so loss. So we'll take, like, the average 150-ish pound man. An hour-long lovemaking session. That's probably a stretch in and of itself. But we'll <laughs> That's just very go. Optimistic. We'll just go with this example, right? He's going to burn probably about 210 calories, about the same as if we went on. He went on a leisurely one-hour stroll. Hmm. The point is, despite all that activity, you're not burning many calories. With any kind of activity, you really don't burn nearly as many calories as you think you do. So don't base your weight loss on the amount of activity you do. Base it more on the, the changes that you make to what you eat and what you don't eat. Okay, that makes sense. So these myths that we've talked about, these are ones that I've heard all the time, probably for years at this point. How did they get so pervasive if they don't work? Well, it really actually has to do with how they get, keep spreading. 
and a lot of experts still believe these things. The science I'm talking about is not new science. It's been around for quite a few years. But all of these things sound so reasonable. Really, we're just, our, our motivation is we want people to be successful. And it sounds reasonable to go slow, be reasonable, make sure you're 100% committed, because all of these things seem like they're just going to lead to disappointment. But all it in reality does is just lead to people not starting their journey. So you're never going to be successful if you don't start. So just go all in, even if you're only 70% ready, just make it happen. There you go. Make sure you're on the right track. Exactly. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. Sure thing. Did you make some resolutions for better health this year, like losing weight, getting more exercise, eating better, quitting smoking, or taking up meditation? Or have you been there, done that, and figure those changes never seem to stick? James Clear, author of the new best-selling book, Atomic Habits, says it's simpler than you think. In his book, he pinpoints four laws to build good habits and four more to ditch your bad habits. Clear's joining us to tell us what works and what common mistakes to avoid as you reimagine your life for the new year. Hi, James. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for talking to me. Tell us, what's the difference between a habit and a resolution? A resolution, I guess, is just an intention that you have. It's kind of like a goal that you set. You know, you're saying like, well, I hope to do this or I plan to do this by a certain time. There's nothing wrong with it, but a habit is a behavior or thought or routine that is performed regularly, that's practiced uh, regularly, and in many cases repeated enough to become fully automatic, or you can do it more or less without thinking. You describe four laws in your book about building a better habit. Can you describe those for us and how they help? So the first law for building a good habit is you want to make it obvious. So you want the cues that prompt your good habits to be obvious and available and visible. The second law of behavior change is to make it attractive. So the more attractive a habit is, the more likely you are to repeat it. The third law is to make it easy. The easier your habits are, the more convenient and frictionless they are, the more likely you are to perform the behavior. And then finally, the fourth law is to make it satisfying. The more satisfying a behavior is, the more you enjoy the immediate outcome that it provides, the more you have a reason to repeat it again in the future. And so those four, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. That explains how to build a good habit. And then if you want to break a bad habit, you just invert those. So to break a bad habit, you want to make it invisible. You want to make the cues invisible. You want to make it unattractive, make it difficult, and make it unsatisfying. At this time of year, we tend to make really big goals, often in more than one area. You're like, I want to, you know, totally overhaul my diet, or I want to you know, get on this really, um, you know, fast track exercise plan. Tell us about how the, that kind of thinking fits in with the, the rules that you talk about in your book. I think that this is perhaps the most common mistake that people make when they go about building a better habit or trying to change something. If you bite off more than you can chew, then a lot of the time it becomes difficult to maintain that. And for whatever reason, we kind of get into this all or nothing pattern this is especially true with diets. You know, people will start a diet, they'll do it for five or six days, and then on the seventh day, their friends want to go to happy hour, and so they go out or they binge eat a pizza or something, and then they think, well, you know, I blew it, so why bother? Like, I guess I, it wasn't uh, meant to be. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be able to stick to this diet. And so they just give up on it entirely. If you have these ambitious goals that you want to achieve, you should implement what I refer to as the two-minute rule. The basic idea is you take whatever habit you're trying to build, 
and scale it down to just the first two minutes. So something really ambitious, like I want to read 40 books next year, scale that down to just the first two minutes and it becomes read one page. Or I want to do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes when people hear this, it sounds a little silly to them because I know the real goal isn't to just take my yoga mat out. I know I actually want to get in shape and do the workout. So why would I bother focusing on that to start with? You need to master the art of showing up, become the type of person who takes out your yoga mat four days a week, and then you actually have the chance to be the kind of person who does a workout four days a week. What tips would you share with someone who knows what they want to accomplish but kind of feels burned out by all the times that they've tried it before? The first thing is scaling it down and making it easy, implementing that two-minute rule idea. You know, a lot of the time when I look back on when I failed on previous goals or habits, I was often trying to do too much at first. The mantra that I like to keep in mind now is volume before intensity. So in other words, I try to put in a bunch of easy reps, prove to myself that I can show up before I worry about doing the hard thing or the intense thing. So the first thing is to make it as easy as possible. The second thing that you can do, though, that really helps when it comes to sticking to a habit, you feel like every time I try, you know, I do this for a week or so, and then I fall off course. The mantra that I like to keep in mind is never miss twice so that you're making sure you get back on track as quickly as possible. Then you're making it more likely that you'll show up each day and you're increasing the odds that you'll end up looking back on those mistakes and they'll just be like a blip on the radar. You know, like if you never miss twice and you start a new streak right after the old one breaks, you get to the end of the year and that mistake that you made doesn't really seem like much at all. But it's almost never the first mistake that ruins you. It's like the spiral of repeated mistakes that comes after that. And the never miss twice kind of allows you to cut that off at the source and uh, get back on track quickly. Do you make resolutions yourself? You know, so I don't have anything wrong with New Year's resolutions. Sometimes people who write about habits like, oh, resolutions are stupid or whatever. I think it's fine. Uh, my thing is, I, if you feel like you want to make a change, there's no need to wait until January 1st. If you're at a different part of the year, then I'm fine with doing it then. But if I have something that I want to get started and I think about it around the new year, then, yeah, I'm fine with making a resolution. James Clear, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Is one of your New Year's resolutions to get more exercise? That's great. It's one of the best things you can do for your body and your mood. It'll even give you more energy. To make sure you get off to a good start, though, you'll want to know some of the biggest mistakes people make when they start working out so you can avoid these exercise errors. Number one is cutting yourself too much slack. Sure, stuff comes up that makes it harder to stick to your workout plan, but skipping exercise just because can set you back. If there's not a good reason to ditch your workout, just do it. If it's within two hours before you work out, your body will still be digesting that food and blood won't flow as well to your muscles. That can affect your post-workout recovery and lead to cramps and nausea. Instead, have a light snack like peanut butter and a banana, Greek yogurt and berries, oatmeal, or a handful of nuts or raisins. The next mistake that people make is not warming up. It saves you a few minutes, but it's not a good idea. Your body needs the warm-up to raise your body temperature and get your blood flowing to help loosen up your muscles and give you more range of motion. It can be something as simple as light walking, jogging, or biking for 5 to 10 minutes. The next mistake is something you've probably seen people do, bouncing when you stretch. You're more likely to hurt your muscles or make them tighter if you move around when you stretch. Hold each one steady for 20 to 30 seconds. 
There is a type called ballistic stretching that calls for bouncing, but you shouldn't try it without working with a professional trainer or coach first. The next mistake is poor posture. This can limit your progress and could lead to a fall or an injury. For example, be careful not to lean on equipment like a treadmill while you're using it. And if you're lifting weights, try to keep your back straight and your shoulders back and relaxed. Don't lock your knees either. The next thing you want to be aware of is holding your breath. You might do this without even knowing it, but it's important to pay attention to your breathing. Holding your breath limits the amount of oxygen coming into your body. If you hold it too long, you might pass out. While you're lifting heavy weights, take a deep breath before you start a set, then gradually let it out as you go. A big mistake that can lead to injury is using bad form. This can keep you from targeting the right areas and limit your range of motion too. It can actually make you weaker and damage your muscles. Use lighter weights and perfect your form before moving on to the heavier stuff. Another mistake that might trip you up is being too competitive. It's natural to want to compare yourself with others, but don't change your workout or try to lift too much to keep up with someone else. You don't know their experience or skill level, so it's best to stay within your limits and focus on your goals. Next up, don't go heavy all the time. Even if your goal is to get stronger, you should mix things up. Training with heavy weights every time you work out can actually keep you from adding muscle and raise your chance of injury. You might vary your workouts with moderate, heavy, and lightweight days. Another mistake, socializing too much. While the gym is a good place to meet people, talking while you work out may not be a good idea. It's best to concentrate on what you're doing and keep chats between sets or between exercises short. On the other hand, if you can hold a normal conversation while working out, you're probably not overdoing it. Are you thinking about trying dry January this year? If you haven't heard, it's a challenge to not drink alcohol for the month. For some people, it's like hitting refresh after overindulging during the holidays. For others, it may be their first step towards sobriety. What's it like to stop beer, wine, and liquor for a month or longer? How do you feel physically when you do it? And what about your mood? There are some potential health benefits. You could give your liver a break, get better sleep, have more energy, maybe find that your blood sugar levels, weight, and concentration improve. But alcohol isn't the easiest thing to quit, even if you don't have an alcohol use disorder, which is a spectrum ranging from mild to severe. Our next guest, writer and multimedia journalist Carrie Wigginton, tried to give up alcohol recently and wrote about it in the Washington Post. She lives in Madison, Wisconsin, and joins us to tell us what happened. Hi, Carrie. Hello. What inspired you to quit alcohol? Did you do it thinking it would be an experiment, or was it for a more permanent change? My husband doesn't drink, so there was sort of always someone there who, you know, if I'm going to drink at home, he's not drinking, so I usually, like, I don't go crazy. I've been drinking more than I would have liked, and by that I mean it started becoming a daily habit, I think when I was probably 33, I'm 37 now, and so when I hit 35, I made a pact with a friend, I was like, oh, let's quit drinking for a couple of weeks. And I tried to quit, and it was extremely difficult. So the first 48 hours, I was, you know, sort of anxious, and I realized just how much uh, it had become a habit. I'd been trying to give it up, but every time I tried, uh, you know, I would make it two or three days, and then I would sort of start drinking again. Part of the problem was um, I'm a journalist. Um, journalists drink a lot. And so everything 
I did sort of revolved around drinking. You'd go out for drinks after work. Um, people would give me free bottles of wine because I sat next to the dining editor. Um, so it was sort of alcohol was pervading my life and I didn't like it. And so I wanted to give it up because I didn't think it was a good long-term solution for um, trying to sort of dealing with anxiety, which is what I realized I had been doing. I would say I tried to give it up for a long time, um, but I didn't really realize how much of a habit it had become until I started meditating. And so I had been meditating with Headspace for about three years. And that's when I sort of could look at the habits I was doing and see like, okay, I'm drinking because I'm stressed out or I'm drinking because that's what I normally do when I'm cooking. I drink because, you know, I get home and that's what I do at the end of the day. And so I wanted to quit drinking, one, for my mental health, um, and two, just because I didn't like that it was a habit that I couldn't quit when I had tried earlier. Absolutely. How much were you drinking at the time? Do you have a rough idea? It sort of just sneaks up on you. Um, You don't realize that you're doing it every day until you stop trying to do it every day. But I would say I was drinking at least two drinks in the evening. So I would come home, have a drink after work. um, And then when I was cooking, I would drink. And then occasionally I would have a glass of wine with dessert. And so I would say it would be two or three drinks at the end, you know, like every day over the course of like four or five hours, which isn't, you're not getting drunk, you know, but it's still not healthy to drink two or three drinks every day. But I would say for the last year before I quit drinking, it was regularly at least two drinks a day, pushing three, probably four if you go out with friends. Okay. And when you stopped, did you just go cold turkey or did you try to phase it out more gradually? I stopped cold turkey because I had read this addiction article in, I believe it was National Geographic, about how addiction is a habit. And it was probably a month or so before I actually tried to quit. And so I did a lot of research about habit forming. Um, I'd already done some sort of habits, like trying to work out, you know, previously. So I'm pretty good at developing habits which is probably why I developed a habit of drinking. Right. (laughs) The first day I quit drinking, I could see when my body sort of started feeling like it wanted a drink. Um, I'm not going to say it was OCD, but it's sort of that sort of instinct, like, oh, I need to do this thing so that I am not anxious anymore. Meditation tells you sort of just sit with your uncomfortable feelings and it'll pass. And I didn't have a physical dependence on alcohol, so I didn't have to go through any of that. And so I just sort of uh, decided for some reason on October 1st, 2017, uh, that I wasn't going to drink anymore. And I put forth a lot of rational habit-forming techniques to then make it so that habit stuck. Right. And you mentioned sort of recognizing that physical feeling that your body wanted to drink. Were there other Mm -hmm. symptoms that you noticed when you stopped? And on the flip side, were there any perks? Yeah, so I uh, am pretty open about my anxiety. So I've dealt with anxiety and depression since I was a kid. You get in this vicious cycle of I'm depressed or anxious, so I drink to calm that depression. Then you get bad sleep because you're drinking. And then in the morning, you wake up depressed. And so the cycle just continues. 
I would say the first couple days, I noticed a, a really big benefit in my mood. So I would wake up sort of bad, like inexplicably down in the morning. And I just sort of assumed it was because I've been depressed forever. So I just felt very comfortable. And that with that feeling, it didn't feel good, but it felt normal. And so probably two days after I quit drinking, that sort of subsided. And then I'd gone two or three days before without drinking. So that it wasn't like that was super new to me. But I would say after a couple of weeks, I noticed that I wasn't waking up sad anymore. And so I'd always assumed that my depression was just sort of this thing that was around and it was always going to be there. But I didn't realize just how much alcohol was making it worse. My anxiety actually got a little bit worse because I wasn't treating it with alcohol sort of in the short term. Um, But eventually, because I wasn't reaching for the drink to calm the anxiety, the anxiety sort of stopped asking for the drink. Um, And it sort it just quelled a little bit. So, I mean, I still have anxiety like everybody else. But I definitely noticed that my mood swings decreased and eventually stopped. I was far less depressed, far less anxious. I would say the number one thing that I noticed pretty immediately was my sleep improved. And so I would wake up, you know, 1 a.m., 3 a.m., wake up two or three times a night at least. And then once I quit drinking, I would sleep six to eight hours full through the night, which I hadn't done in years. And so one of the reasons I don't want to go back to drinking is because I know how much it'll mess with my sleep and mess with my mood. Right. Absolutely. I can understand And so with drinking, people can get into rituals and it's a whole thing. It's like you have the drink that you or the cocktail glass that you use and then you get the ice and you get the vodka and then you get all the things that, you know, the lime and the the, whatever you put in your drink. Even seeing something like the drink that you normally use or the cocktail glass that you normally use can trigger your brain into saying, oh, you should be making a drink right now. Yeah, that's very interesting. People always ask me, you know, how do you know if you have a problem or not? I can't tell you if you have a problem, but if you try to quit and you can't, that's when I think you need to sort of reassess why it is you're drinking. So I'm not saying that everybody needs to quit drinking, but you very much need to look at why it is you're drinking. What advice would you give to someone who wants to give this a try, whether it's for dry January just for a short-term basis or for the longer term? It definitely gets easier. So if someone wants to give it up for a month, I would just say know that the first couple of days are probably going to be difficult, um, but try to put something else in the place of what you've been doing when you're drinking. So I drink tea at night, which sort of sounds lame to some people, but if you're putting it, you know, you're putting a physical thing in place of alcohol, your brain is sort of still seeing that you're doing something, you're still drinking something, just tell your friends, like, to not give you a hard time. Um, And it's not that you can't go out with them. It's not that you're judging them. But if you think that being around alcohol is going to affect your ability to not do it, then I would say come up with different things to do. So maybe hang out more during the day, do more active things, maybe ask your friends to do game nights, you know, where 
when people go out to bars, the only thing to do is drink. So make sure when you go out that there's something else you can be doing, you know, playing darts, playing pool, just something that isn't I'm sitting around with everybody else who is drinking. Were there other habits that you picked up uh, to sort of distract yourself basically from drinking? So I did a lot of cooking, which my husband uh, very much liked. <laughs> um, I also exercised a lot, so I would say I did probably more exercising, too. That's a pretty good game plan for maybe giving it a go without alcohol. Thank you so much, Carrie Wigginton, for sharing this with us. We appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Now for our Tweak of the Week. Don't go it alone. We've talked a lot about setting goals and creating new habits today, and we all know how easy it is for our good intentions to get derailed. One way to make sure they stick is to share them with a friend or a loved one. While it's not the only key to successful goal setting, it's an important one. In fact, one study found that people who had social support were able to follow an exercise program longer than those who didn't. So invite friends and family to join you in kicking off your new habit, or find a social group that shares the same goal or interest. It could be online or in person. Enlist the help of an expert, like a coach, or share your journey in a social media post. You'll be more likely to follow through when you have someone else to hold you accountable and provide support. Thanks for listening to Health Now this week. Take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It helps other people find out about the show. And don't forget, WebMD has tons of great content on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now.